Welcome to Talking Feds, Women at the Table, a podcast that brings to the table legal and policy professionals for a lively and intellectual discussion that amplifies voices that are often unheard. I'm Ann Milgram, professor of practice and distinguished scholar at NYU School of Law and the former attorney general for the state of New Jersey. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm the Stokes Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, where I'm also the faculty director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. And I'm Julia Kayyem, faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School, a former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security and a national security analyst for CNN. So today, with the election coming up, we're excited to have Mary McCord, legal director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, join Juliet and Melissa in a conversation about the work she's doing to monitor the armed militias and voter suppression efforts threatening the election. She'll also talk about what she's monitoring for the post-election. While I would have loved to have joined this conversation too, most of my time this week has been taken up by police reform and also for a presentation I was giving in Ithaca, New York on a project they're doing. And hopefully we can talk about police reform in an upcoming episode. But before we get to all of that, I thought we could talk about the final days of the 2020 election. So ladies, I voted yesterday. It took me five tries to get to vote this year in New York State. I asked for an absentee ballot. I didn't get it. I called New York State to get another one, and they said they would send it. I didn't get it. I went twice to vote for early voting, and the lines were enormous, hours long. The poll workers had told me it was three or more hours. Finally, yesterday, I voted, and I waited in line for two hours, and I felt great, and it was such a sense of accomplishment to get to vote. I still have to drop off my ballot. I just completed it today and I need to drop it off. I'm not anticipating that it will be difficult to do so. And I think, you know, I'm in one of these blue states where I think it'll be collected pretty easily. But I have a nephew who is in college in Pennsylvania and he lives most of the time when he's not at college in Texas. So I asked him the other day, have you gotten your mail-in ballot from Texas? He's like, no, you know, I emailed them and applied for it, but I haven't gotten it yet. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Have you checked? And he's like, well, how do I do that? And then there was this whole like moment of learned helplessness where I was like, you are 18 years old and you need to like, know how to do this yourself. And then I did it for him. Like any, like, you know, I went into full mom mode, but this was the funniest thing. I was like, he hadn't actually applied. And I said to him, like, how did, why do you think you applied? He's like, well, you know, I, I, I sent an email and I gave them my address and I thought they would send me a ballot. And I was like, this is Texas. They had an all white primary until like the 1950s. Like they are literally trying to confine the voter drop-off boxes to one per county. Like they don't want you to vote. That's not how you get a ballot. So we filled out the application by mail. I had him overnight it. So this was last week, and he's still waiting to find out if he's going to get a ballot by mail. What? When you overnighted it? I mean, we overnighted it. We overnighted it. I told he was. I was like, I will Venmo you the money. I don't care how much it costs. Get it in the mail. And yeah, this is Harris County. You wonder at what stage do the anecdotes become statistics, and that's what makes me nervous. I hear enough of these that I think this is you know this is problematic. Then I see the numbers of votes that are counted and the people that are voting and their votes are going to be counted, especially early and mail-in. And I get giddy as someone who forget which side of the aisle, you just people voting. These numbers are fantastic. And these youth numbers are fantastic. And the elderly numbers are fantastic, although we've never had a problem with them. But I do worry about all these different pieces combined to be 
statistically relevant, which was which is the plan. You have enough anecdotes and forget the foreign threats on vote. It's just one piece of the overall. It's a hard year to vote when everyone wants to vote. You've got COVID and then you've got the threat of violence and and potential unrest, both on the third and then, of course, afterwards. And so it's unbecoming of a nation like ours. But I guess it's more typical than I than I probably ever wanted to believe. So one thing I thought was really just fascinating to me, and it had not occurred to me, and again, I went to law school, I I understand how elections work, but I asked my nephew, did it not occur to you that you hadn't received your ballot yet, that something had gone wrong? And he's like, well, no, like lots of people on my hall haven't received their ballots. I'm like, well, where are they from? And he's like, from all over. And I'm like, well, did that not strike you as odd? You know that every state has their own election laws. And he's like, I didn't know that. I don't think we've done a good job of socializing people to like what it means to vote and how you do it. And also every state has their own rules. I oversaw the state division of elections when I was AG and I worked to move it out of the AG's office because it was not the right place for it to be. It's now with the secretary of state, but I can tell you it's understaffed. It's underfunded. It's like crunch time when an election happens and you're not going to run a huge staff year round because there aren't that many elections. But then you get to this moment where it's like, there's a capacity issue. I'm, I'm really worried about suppression, but I think we should also be really clear that I think you have historic numbers of people voting. Most state division of elections are understaffed, underfunded, frankly, like struggling to keep up with technology and changes in voting machines. And like, it's just a lot. Well, and there's also a knowledge gap with the voters. I mean, I, I think there are probably a lot of voters who think there are some sort of set of uniform national standards around voting. And, and that's just not the case, especially younger voters who just can't imagine that we have this sort of Byzantine system with 50 different sets of election laws for the same national election. I think that sort of lack of uniformity both is going to save us and be our downfall, right? So it's going to save us in the sense that, uh, you know, I think that our architectural, our democratic architecture makes the probability that there can be sort of a, you know, a foreign threat actually impacting overall an election. But on the other hand, it means that we have no, you know, no connective tissue between something that everyone's doing over election season now. And so that the rules are all different. And the rules also about access, what you're allowed to do near a voting area, what the, the definition of a militia, the definition of intimidation, it's insane. And then meanwhile, in the work I'm doing now with governors and mayors preparing, when National Guard's preparing for the the worst case scenario, which is what you want people like me to do, you know, protocols and build up, and you'll start to hear about more of it this weekend. We, We do not have a federal law banning weapons at voting sites, which like, I don't think I knew that before. I just assumed, but of course, open carry states I didn't know it either. I would have assumed you cannot bring a gun into a voting place. Not the case. Astonishing. Juliet, when I saw your Twitter thread this week, I thought it was excellent. Can you talk just for a little bit about the National Guard piece? Because I think this is really important because people like us talk about voter suppression. You can't have police officers in the polls. But then there's this flip side, which is like you have to prepare for what happens if there are problems. So I don't want people to be afraid if they see a National Guard. Man. No, and I, that's why I was trying to get out there because I realized, you know, I live in these two worlds. One is like the public health world where like it's TMI, they're so touchy-feely and you're all like emotions. You're like, can we just make a decision and execute? And then I live in the public safety world where 
you just have a sort of tendency to keep quiet, which I think is really not healthy for a democracy to be effective on Tuesday. So there's no question and across Democratic uh, blue and red states, and in particular the swing states, that there is heightened tension. There's no strong intelligence that I'm seeing of a massive attack. In fact, it's very interesting because of some of these major arrests, you're hearing them very wary of going out on the third because they know that there's going to be a police presence, which is what you want. I mean, you actually want to deter it. So there's been a lot of training in, in particular in cities where the relationship between law enforcement and communities of color is obviously at its highest tension. Think about Philadelphia and how do you work with those communities and stakeholders to have a presence that's there to protect the vote without looking like it's suppressing it. Part of that planning, which is what I warned everyone about, is the National Guard. Now I'm monitoring six states already have monitored, but five of them are blue, right? I mean, because that's where you're going to have these right wingers. So people just have to be aware they work within what's called in our worlds of wonkiness, you know, support of civilian authorities. So it's defense support of uh, civilian authorities, DSCA. And so they work in to support them. They can't arrest. They can't do anything. It's just if, if anything were to go wrong. I don't mind it, but I also live in this world, so I'm less suspicious of it. And I also just want to remind people, talking about anecdotes, two New York police officers screaming, we love Trump. Over their speakers, right? Over their car speakers. But how many NYP, how many NYPD officers are? 40,000. So 40,000. So just want people to put stuff in perspective. Eight Trump supporters at a polling site yelling at people. Like, in other words, we also owe it to ourselves to not amplify them in a way that makes it look like that people can't vote. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about when are we going to hear who wins the election I think a lot about concerns about unrest after Tuesday. I don't really think, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I was in lines with hundreds of people in New York, there are probably thousands of people, and it is a blue state, but I'm sure that there were Trump supporters there. Everybody was great. It was a real sort of sense of community. And I think there are enough poll workers, both parties have poll workers. So I worry a lot less. I think you're right about the isolated incidents, but I worry a lot less about Tuesday. I worry about after and maybe not knowing. So I worry about Tuesday night because all of the empirical portraits of early voting suggest that early voting favors the Democrats. But that also means that because all of the different states have different rules about when they begin to count early ballots, we may not actually know what this huge volume of early voting means, whereas in-person voting actually favors Republicans. So those are the votes that actually get counted in real time on election day. So you can be watching this and it may very well look like the Republicans have a lead or winning. The president will likely say things on Twitter about his lead, but it won't actually capture the actual portrait of what is happening because there's so much variation in how early ballots are counted. And then when the early ballots are counted, if it switches, he's seeded all of this discussion about how the early balloting leads to fraudulent results, which is not true. But I think you could see how that narrative could get credence when you're watching something on TV and then the next day, oh, we counted the early ballots. And in fact, this happened. So I think there needs to be a sort of managing of expectations in the media that there isn't election night anymore. Election season, right. It's election season. That began whenever the voting began and ends whenever the votes are counted. And the votes get counted at different times, like really stressing that. Like there's the in-person stuff that is easy to tabulate right there on the fly. And then there's this other stuff like Pennsylvania can't actually count 
mail-in ballots until the day of, whereas a place like Florida can begin counting early ballots already. So some of that tabulation is already happening, but not everywhere. Right. But Melissa, let me be clear. One of the reasons why you're hearing about 10,000 votes in Pennsylvania being thrown out because of signature, whatever, is because the ballots are being prepped. So in other words, so at 1201 on November 3rd is you can start to count them. So if those numbers are as overwhelmingly one candidate Biden over the other, those will start to at least show in in the rules. And so thankfully they can prep them. So that's the one thing that had me worried, but apparently you can do that in a lot of these states. And from the security perspective, I got one goal, right? One goal, Mm -hmm. which is Pennsylvania, call it early for Biden. It's over. There's no way that Trump can sustain a mythology. And so as all roads lead to Pennsylvania. There is a scenario in which You're right. Pennsylvania goes early to Biden. It gets called. There's enough ballots. But I think there's also scenarios in which we don't know. And no, I am concerned that the media is going to put out information. It worries me for two reasons. One, I think we saw this in in the 2000 election. It's bad to have the back and forth of who won. It, It just it shouldn't be a horse race in the sense of public debate because it's not an election until all the votes are counted. And so I worry about sort of the piecemeal of it. And I agree, if it's a blowout, it's it's a very different conversation. But I worry a lot about this narrative that has been built where they've released information about voter fraud, a very small number of voter fraud cases in Pennsylvania. But again, it's all setting the table for this argument that it's transparent, I think, to us in some ways. But I think for a lot of Americans, a news organization could take that and the, the Trump campaign could take one small thing and just blow it out as everybody's stealing the election. I'm not conceding. I'm litigating everything. And this will go on for weeks. So I think that's certainly a fear. And I don't have a ready answer for how you combat that other than to continue pushing these statistics that make clear that in-person voting and mail-in voting do not have differential rates of fraudulent tabulation. But but I'll just say, sort of to give a longitudinal lens to it, this is straight out of the Trump playbook. Like every institution that could be a check on him, he has managed to delegitimize or at least call into question its legitimacy, whether that's the press because of fake news or the courts because of judges who are Trump judges or Biden judges or, you know, Obama judges or whatever, or, or anything, really. I mean, and this election, which is really, I think, a referendum on him more than anything else, like he's challenging the legitimacy of that already. So this is just the last gasp of a four-year project that has basically been about delegitimizing the bulwarks of democracy to allow for almost unfettered executive power. Yeah. If he fails at this one, he has one more, which is, of course, burn the place on the way out, which uh, we have to be prepared for. I think I, I think parts of me believe or hope part of Trump's strength comes from the fact that we're interested in him. And I think this sort of tapering off, will, will that seem as newsworthy, even if he's still president, if he's on his way out? I mean, in other words, just like any other transition, if November 3rd settles it on November 4th, the question is going to be who's chief of staff and November 5th, it's going to be who's secretary of state. I mean, in other words, we have a way of sort of moving on, but he is going to do a lot of damage if he stays, if he stays as president and doesn't decide to leave early. Juliet, do you watch The Crown? Do you watch The Crown? I do. Yeah. Which what, what episode are you thinking of? Okay. So I saw so the first two seasons. I yeah. watch all of it. I'm like super deep into it. But 
Do you wonder if like Trump, if he loses, will be like the Duke of Windsor sort of trying to have this kind of shadow government off in the periphery, just making mischief constantly? Yes, I do. I think it's very likely he'll leave the country. I agree. And and I think and I think the irony is, of course, (laughs) he'll probably end up in a Muslim country. I'm not laughing at the Muslim part. It's just how he started his presidency. He will end up in a country without extradition that will give him money, likely, and will support his a lifestyle that he wants. And and the first lady will stay here. I mean, I, none of that seems inconceivable to me, just knowing who he is. Why, did, why does he want to stay in New York? And can he stay in Florida if he has that much debt? Yeah, I think the tax piece, and, and I think, you know, I've gotten a ton of calls. I don't know if you guys have gotten these calls, but I've gotten a ton of calls from reporters about if the president loses, are they going to bring criminal cases against him? Will they charge him on the Mueller obstruction? Will they charge him on Michael Cohen? And the thing I keep saying is like the piece that we still don't know everything about are the taxes. We we sort of have seen half of it, but there's, as a former prosecutor, there's a lot of questions I have. There's a lot of subpoenas I would issue. And so, I mean, I certainly think you're right to sort of think in terms of what would he do if the president does lose. And again, I think we don't know what's going to happen, but if he does lose, I think he will be as disruptive as possible on his way out. And I will tell you, I was attorney general under Governor Corzine. He lost re-election to Governor Christie. And we took the position, like we were in the middle of a lot of things. We oversaw juvenile justice. There were things we really believed needed to be done. The incoming administration asked us not to do them. And we honored their requests because there were things where they were literally going to come in on week one and undo it. They were like regulatory. and. The next governor was going to get to decide that reg. You could argue we were too respectful. We did a lot of the things we were planning to do, but the things that we hadn't finished yet that were sort of in process that we could pull back on, we had conversations, we had a a very orderly transition. That will never happen here. There's just a certain level of respect for government and respect for the democratic process of like, this is the person who's elected. They're going to make the executive orders and the regulations that just will never exist here. And the outcome of that will be that a new administration could come in having to undo even more. Instead of coming in and starting to think about COVID and all these critical issues, you could end up seeing the first three three to six months being spent undoing a lot of new regulations or executive orders or, or just internal department things that people don't pay attention to what happens in the specific cabinet departments. They have a huge amount of power. I would come in with a belief based on this, just knowing what they might do in those three months that you just undo without asking anything that was done in the last six months of the Trump administration from regulations to contracts issued. Can you imagine how much money they're going to try to get to their friends in that time period and anything like that? You just sort of say, okay, the rule is canceled. You can make your appeal. And my guess is most of them won't because they'll be unjustified. But that's the money leaving the Treasury for these, you know, emergency items is going to be out of control. So can I change the topic really quickly? Yeah. Did you see that anonymous is Miles Taylor? Yes. What did you think of that? (laughs) Me? Was that the most anticlimactic revelation Okay, so everyone's in trouble. Miles is in trouble, you know, because he's he has a contract with CNN and he said explicitly on air that he uh, was not anonymous. He said it to reporters. He said it to Anderson Cooper. I don't know how you rank a senior official, but I don't know if he was. And I don't know how The New York Times determines that. But I mean, I do think I commend Republicans, especially ones in the administration, especially because 
more senior people than him have not come forward, who have less to lose, who will still be allowed on the public boards and all that stuff, who will still be elder statesmen like Mattis and Kelly have not come forward. So I really applaud him until November 3rd. And then assuming there's a new president, I need a reckoning. I, and in particular, I need a reckoning about the one thing that I believe there has to be a reckoning about, which is the family separation. He was deputy chief of staff and chief of staff during that period. So you can tell me it would have been worse. I'm finding it hard to believe how it could be worse. I feel the same way. And just for the record, I want everyone to know that Melissa just did her mom hand to some child <laughs> coming into the room. <laughs> oh my God, that was like so instinctive. It was like- was seamless. I know, it was like, I do the hand sometimes, it doesn't work. So Melissa needs to give me tips. Can I say one thing on the family separation thing? I think there there must be a reckoning on that. Like there must be a national reckoning yeah. about that. And his role in it, it is deeply, deeply troubling. And I, my first reaction was, who cares? Who is this guy? And my second reaction was, actually, you don't get off the hook for the work that you've done by having written an anonymous op-ed and an anonymous book. And we have to understand what accountability means. And he has to be held accountable for that. Yes, I agree. I, I think the accountability is coming. I mean, I, I think no one got up and cheered him yesterday. I mean, it was all it was sort of like the biggest lead balloon in the world when yeah. this revelation was announced. So maybe maybe that is in the offing. But that's a good transition. Before we can get to the reckoning, we first have to get through this election. And as we've mentioned, there are all sorts of things going on and makes this election unprecedented in so many ways. And so to help us suss it all out and to really think about some of the threats that are plaguing the polling places at this point in time, we're going to talk with Mary McCord, who's the legal director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, ICAP, at Georgetown Law. And she's going to talk to us about all of the work that they're doing to monitor armed militias and to think about voter suppression efforts that are threatening the election. And she'll also talk to us about the post-election landscape as well. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're absolutely thrilled. I thought it'd be helpful for listeners first. Just tell us a little bit about your organization and what, what you do. Sure. So we are called the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, which we say ICAP because it's a okay. real mouthful. <laughs> we're at Georgetown Law, and we're a group of a small group of litigators, many of us who came from the Department of Justice in the exodus in early 2017. And we work with students and we do public interest litigation. So we do criminal justice reform, immigration work, First Amendment work, separation of powers. But we've developed a bit of a niche expertise in anti-unlawful private militia work ever since a lawsuit we brought after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally in August 2017, using state law to get court-ordered injunctive relief to prevent the many armed unlawful militia groups and white supremacist groups from returning to Charlottesville to engage in that armed, coordinated usurpation of law enforcement authority and use of force offensively against counter-protesters and citizens in the community. Mary, it seems like we're hearing a lot more about militias these days. Uh, has there been an uptick in militia activity or has there always been a kind of interest in militia? We're just now become more attuned to it and, and more attentive to it. 
So the modern militia movement really started in the 1990s with the famous armed standoffs against federal government officials in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, Waco, Texas. But then we've seen over the years, they would kind of, you know, rise and ebb depending really on who was in the White House and whether they could coalesce around this notion that they needed to protect their Second Amendment rights. They tend to have a through line of general anti-government, very pro-absolutist view of the Second Amendment. So sometimes, historically, when there's been a Republican in the White House, they kind of lay low because they don't really feel as threatened. And when a Democrat is in the White House, such as when Barack Obama was elected, they have a bit of a resurgence. Well, we're in a strange anomaly now because, of course, we have a Republican in the White House, yet we're seeing more and more public-facing unlawful private militia activity than I think we've seen, you know, in any of the modern militia movement. And so it's interesting because they find themselves ideologically aligned with the president, very anti-immigrant, very anti-government, because even the president himself is quite anti-government, very anti-other, including what they would call anti-fascists, and very pro-absolutist view of the Second Amendment. So rather than feel like, oh, they don't really need to be out in public anymore, they've actually you know, kind of gotten into a call and response relationship with the president. You know, he complains about state governors shut down orders. They respond by armed assaults on the state houses, demanding ends to stay at home orders, masking orders, what have you. He blames violence at racial justice demonstrations on you know, Antifa or the left or domestic terrorists on the left, and they respond by self-deploying to ostensibly protect property, protect Confederate statues, protect, you know, other things like that, arming themselves with assault rifles, wearing full military gear, you know, crushing any opportunity for free exercise of speech, heightening aggressiveness and tensions and resulting in some really tragic things like the shootings in Kenosha, shootings in Albuquerque and elsewhere. As we head towards Tuesday or as people are listening to this, what are you nervous about? What are you seeing on the ground? There's so many threats to our election security, some foreign threats, some you know, arguably legal threats, like uh, suppressing the right to vote through judicial means. There's COVID. Um, And then there's just like this just sort of nerve wracking, you know, sort of violence thing, right, that we don't know what's going to happen. So and then I should say this morning, there was an arrest of a major paramilitary white supremacist group in Michigan who had clearly been followed. So just maybe put everything in perspective. I know it's a big country, but these seem nerve wracking. Yes, no question. And and it is that call and response I was referring to that has made us concerned about the election because the president for some time now has been saying that mail-in balloting is, you know, at heightened risk of fraud with no empirical evidence, by the way, yeah. to back that up. He's suggesting that any delay in tabulation of the votes must mean that it's a rigged election and really not, and nothing should be counted after election day. I mean, these are all just dog whistles yeah. to these unlawful militias to take matters into their own hands. When you say, can I just ask you something, when you say dog whistles, right? So this is interesting to me because in, in counterterrorism where I started, you know, we have this notion of stochastic terrorism where a, a leader, a terrorist generally, doesn't have to be specific. And it's really what the followers are hearing. So are they hearing basically go out on election day? Like what are they hearing or your understanding, you know, from him? Because he's, 
you know, they say, oh, he's joking or plausible deniability or he does it around a joke. So you're not quite sure how to take it. Right. So, I mean, I think we've had a little bit both here of just interpreting what they want to interpret, but also some, you know, really very thinly failed uh, direct requests. Like the first debate, I think, was the greatest example. He told a violent extremist militia group to stand by. He then said he urged his supporters to come to the polls and watch very carefully. He then refused to denounce civil unrest post-election if he didn't think the results were fair. So I think you put that together and it doesn't take much interpretation to understand his meaning. And you probably know that that violent organization within minutes was monetizing and merchandising off of that statement. So some of them definitely think that he is directly emboldening them. And ever since his comments after Charlottesville about very fine people on both sides, the far right extremist groups, including militia groups, have felt like they had an ally in the White House Mm -hmm. and have felt very emboldened. And, And let's make no mistake, you know, they do make money off of this. It's a recruiting effort. It's Mm. a merchandising effort. It's a fundraising effort. So it's not just that they pose a greater threat to public safety, which they absolutely do, but they're monetizing it too. So so can I jump in here to focus on the election? So, you know, we are days away from this election. Voter protection efforts look really different than they have, I think, in past years. You know, some voter protection units are training voter protection officers to be able to physically engage if necessary in order to deal with the possibility or prospect of violence at the polls. The NAACP is already counseling their voter protection units to think about the prospect of having to intervene, sometimes physically, in these particular situations. So all of this feels very different. I mean, in the past, voter protection was being able to identify the right number that you could call in order to counsel a voter who had issues with regard to their ability to cast a ballot. So, so it all feels you know, quite unfamiliar. What are the solutions? Because, you know, one aspect of this is perhaps deploying more law enforcement, but in certain communities, the prospect of more law enforcement could actually be an even greater deterrent to voting at the polls or might be seen as intimidation among certain kinds of communities or might suppress voter turnout in certain communities. So how do you strike that balance between trying to quell what might be the possibility of violence, but also providing people with a safe space in which to cast their ballots? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I am seeing a lot of bright spots. So because of our concern, we actually put out fact sheets that are available for every single state that describe what an unlawful militia is, describe the law, and describe what specific to that state, why it's illegal in that state. They also include questions like so that voters who are in line, so that poll workers, so that election officials, and just observers. And I've addressed the NAACP, I've addressed uh, America Votes, I've addressed a number of different organizations say, you know, if you see armed groups of individuals, or other types of voter intimidation as well. Like, make a note of what you're seeing. What are they dressed like? Are they pretending to patrol the polls? What kind of weapons do they have? Are people, you know, turning around and leaving because they're afraid? And then report that to election officials. If you feel immediately in danger and it's not a situation where you think it would make it worse, report to law enforcement. And, you know, call election protection helpline. We, my group of attorneys, is working with attorneys there to take immediate action 
action in the face of these threats. But beyond that, and and we hope that this will be empowering to election workers and to voters, because so many people have just always assumed that this type of activity was protected by the Second Amendment. There's such a mythology about the Second Amendment, and it's just wrong. And once they have that aha moment and they see it in writing, Supreme Court has said paramilitary organizations aren't protected. They feel like they can do something. They don't have to necessarily tolerate it. And we've seen strong statements. You know, we've been on a bit of a mission and I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, talking as much as I can about that. And we're starting to see state attorney generals, district attorneys. I've met with a number of them. Chiefs of police, mayors did a press conference the other day with one of each of those um, to say, we stand up united against voter intimidation. We're not going to tolerate this type of, you know, armed, unlawful militia activity. And I think that does help. I mean, people, voters need to know that elected officials have their backs. The thing that's been so amazing to me during the Trump administration, besides a million things, but the unwillingness of institutions to assert agency, right? I mean, in other words, he's a big bully and he's a jerk and he does, and he's violent and we know that. But to see this sort of, I think, an often bipartisan pushback is, is, I would say, from the from the physical securities, I mean, is really, really welcoming. And I, my level of stress is significantly lower because you're seeing people sort of take this seriously. I think my, I mean, the question I have is, okay, let's say, so let's say Biden wins, not whatever, but more likely than not, you have a brutal transition because either Trump tunes out or he burns the house on his way out. We're not sure which one. He gets so bored so easily that it, the first might be possible. I want to know, what do you what are you mapping out for the first year or two if there is a Biden administration? He's not African-American, as you noted, with Obama, but he's a Democrat. Does it ratchet up? Does it simmer without Trump? I mean, do we know? Well, I think we're going to be in a period, at least for the near term, where we still are seeing increasing militia activity until more and more state and local officials crack down, and maybe even some federal government crackdowns if we do have a transition of power. I will say that in the chatter on social media, there is dissension among militia groups right now about coming to the polls. They're very well of our work. Apparently, we have a researcher who's doing nothing but scouring social media and is seeing a lot of chatter about ICAP's work as well as some other organizations. And of course, with the arrests in Michigan regarding the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer, that gave militias a bad name. So there's some dissension about whether they should just not deal with the polls in order to kind of improve their reputation, but they're putting their emphasis then on this post-election period. And I think no matter who wins, we're going to see activity on the streets because there's probably going to be a time of uncertainty in declaring a winner. There could be a lot of litigation. And so much depends on then what the president is doing during that time. Does he have a change of heart here and like call for calm and peace? Or does he egg on extremist groups? perhaps even trying to create a situation where then he could invoke the Insurrection Act and federalize the National Guard and send troops. I don't even really like talking publicly about those parade yeah. horribles, but he he holds the cards in this current period in terms of what tone he's going to set, I think, for some of these groups. And regardless of who you know ends up being declared the winner, if it's him under a cloud based on litigation, we will probably see people demonstrating peacefully in the streets. But then that will be reason for the right wing militia groups to come out you know, and say, well, we better protect against these violent anarchists. If it's Biden declared the winner, we could see them coming out in opposition to that 
declaration, that decision as being the product of cheating or a rigged election. So, and then your question, of course, went beyond that. Okay, what what about once we finally have somebody, you know, that it's final, they're in the White House, if it is Vice President Biden, what will happen then? And then I think we'll be back in uh, maybe in a weird way, some more normalcy, but it won't be the end of the militias unless more normalcy in the sense of the traditional, he's coming to take our guns, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things I think is really sort of fascinating about this and, and the uptick in militia activity is that if you were around during Waco or Ruby Ridge, you might think of the militia as a phenomenon that exists primarily in red states, but there's actually a lot of militia activity even in blue states. So the Pacific Northwest and those eastern pockets of Oregon and Washington have a lot of militia activity and, and what ostensibly are very, very blue regions of the country. Are you seeing that in other places as well? Yes. Oftentimes it's kind of those areas where you have like the blue islands in the Red Seas, where the rural areas tend to be where more of the militia activity is and the core towns and cities are are much more. But I um, thought Oregon was totally out of the fray, like Portlandia <laughs> put a bird on it. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, there's but you know, I will say yes, we see it there, but we see it everywhere. And ACLED, A C L E D, Armed Conflict Location something data. You can go to their website. They just did a heat map of sort of the places that they predict based on past militia activity to be the hot spots. And those are places also that we are focusing on. But you'll see it's East Coast, West Coast, North, South, Midwest, red states, blue states. Like I said, I do think we are finally getting some attention to this issue as yeah. people course correct on the Second Amendment. And I think we're going to see more state and local officials being willing to take action. We are right now co-counsel with the district attorney in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in a Mm -hmm. pending lawsuit against an unlawful militia there. I have talked to a number of officials, including the incoming head of the National Attorney General's Association, who really wants to kind of focus on this. I've talked to Congress people who are interested in maybe creating some new federal law on this. So we, we may be at a turning point, you know, for whatever gray area there is in the Second Amendment protections, the Supreme Court, even in holding that it protects an individual right to bear arms for self-defense was crystal clear that it does not protect paramilitary organizations, reaffirming a holding from 1886 as recently as 2008. So we've got like 125 years of solid jurisprudence on that. And and whatever the militias try to tell you otherwise, they're just yeah. wrong. They say well-regulated militias, that's us, we have a commander. No, well-regulated means regulated by the state. And you can look back in history, even to the times of the colonies, and that's always what it is. We want to end on an empowering note. So the average person said, what can I do? Yeah, I mean, I I should have responded, Melissa, when you said about the voting organizations training people to physically intervene. I would really caution against that if the other people are armed with (laughs) AR-15s. Good. They might be able to de-escalate some people waving banners and things like that. But if we're talking about long guns and that is the preferred weapon of choice, I think it is important to report those to officials. And it's just too fraught. It's just too, too scary. To the extent that, as you say, they are sort of emboldened by this sort of inviolate understanding of the Second Amendment, there are other constitutional guarantees in play here like the right to vote, like the First Amendment. So there are rights on all sides and understanding that there are rights on all sides has to be a big part of this conversation too. 
That's right. And actually, I think that what we are seeing in terms of the massive turnout for early voting is a real sign of how resilient voters Mm -hmm. are in America. Like they know about these threats and they're saying, I don't care. I'm coming out there. I'm getting in line. If I have to wait 11 hours, I'm waiting. I mean, I've been so I'm dancing in line. I'm going to have, I'm going to make make this joyful. Yeah. 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 It's great. Well, to joy, to joy. Yes. To joyful voting. Thank you so much for being here with us. (laughs) Thanks, Mary. Thank you for having me. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. And I really hope you can come back to speak with us some more on this topic and other related topics in a future episode. But before we wrap up, I wanted to close the episode with a recording from one of our listeners. Last week in our episode on COVID's impact on women in the workplace, we had asked our listeners to share their COVID caregiving stories with us. We wanted to share one of the stories we received which is actually from a dad, Grant Parpan, who was balancing work with schooling his kids during the pandemic, because all working parents are going through this right now. It has been chaos. You know, we're really, really busy. Uh, We've our kids have been in daycare. Now it's, you know, 24 seven. We're in this house together. My wife and I are both working from home now. We're doing homeschooling three days a week. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher at all. And I'm trying to teach my son how to read. I mean, that is the real struggle. But reading is also probably the best part of my day when I'm reading with him. You know, at the end of the day, things finally quiet down. He lays down in his bed. I snuggle up next to him. We pick up Harry Potter. We try to get through a chapter a night, which can be a challenge on those really tiresome days. But there we are, quiet. Everything's finally peaceful after this whole day of chaotic energy. And we read. And then we go to bed. Thanks, Grant. And thanks for listening. So that's it for the show this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast, share with your friends, and leave a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at W-A-T-T underscore T-F for news and updates. Talking Fed's Women at the Table is produced by Harry Littman and Jennifer Bassett with production assistance by Matt McCardle and Andrea Carla Michaels. Our audio engineer is Justin Wright from Seaplane Armada. As always, thanks to the amazing Philip Glass for letting us use his music. Talking Fed's Women at the Table is a production of Dalito LLC. See you all next time.